wherever you locate yourself in the story of Mark 8 and in proximity to God, you've got a spot. You've got a spot. If you're a straight-A student, if you're the devil, if you're a distant bystander, if you're anyone in between, there's a spot for all of us as an own ramp. If we're willing to go with Jesus, we can find a place in the story, and it won't necessarily leave us where it finds us. In the beginning, this passage tells us that we need to think for ourselves, speak for ourselves. It's a very Baptist-friendly passage, something to be summoned when anyone's in the midst of an ecumenical conversation, an interfaith dialogue, and you're trying to explain what the priesthood of the believer means, practically speaking. Jesus says, who do others say that I am? Okay, that's nice. Now, who do you say that I am? So who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? This is the ultimate confession of the Christian faith, is it not? Now, some of you were raised in the faith by the way of the Roman road of salvation. So you're probably already recalling parts of Romans 10. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, period, full stop. Others of you may be tensing up, not necessarily because of the words of Romans, but maybe because of the way the, quote, Roman road of salvation was used in your life in a manipulative way by people who were absolutely certain at a time when you were anything but certain, when you were spiritually vulnerable, impressionable. Don't worry. If you shudder at the thought of a forced public profession of faith, remember the one disciple in the story who was absolutely certain will shortly be called the devil. So, whether or not this question carries the weight of eternal salvation in your hearing of it this morning, it is in truth an existential question for each one of us. Who do you say Jesus is? We begin with this personal directive to give our own answer in our own words, but then we shift, and without much warning, the straight-A student Peter is basking in the spotlight for what he uttered was cosmically true, profoundly true. And then, according to Mark, Jesus sternly orders the disciples not to tell anyone about this. This revelation that Jesus is the Messiah is apparently a secret, not to be rushed or forced, not to be used in any public or quick way to try to convert the masses. And then Jesus turns the page in his lesson plan. He moves from them to him, from personal conviction to divine revelation. Hear one more, once more, a part of the passage that Sophia so lovely read. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus said all of this quite openly. Did you catch that last part? Whereas Peter's confession that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christos, 
had to be sternly ordered to secrecy. This news about suffering and betrayal and sacrifice was said quite openly. Jesus isn't trying to be discreet about this one. He wants it to get out in the open. He wants it on full display, bright spotlight, playing on repeat, as word about this new prophet from Nazareth starts to spread from village to village. Now, this next part of the passage would best be enacted on stage because it involves some physicality, hitting marks, adjusting the lights, building dramatic tension between the characters and the audience. So imagine with me. Let's take a little walk. All right. So movement one, Peter takes Jesus, calls him aside, a little private chat, teacher's pet to teacher. All right. Uh, the disciples stay frozen in place, so let's cue those spotlights to 50%. We're, we're imagining, by the way. Just play along. <laughs> All right, movement two. Peter sternly rebukes Jesus. Now, literally, the Greek word is epitomao, and it means to, like, sternly order, to censure, to warn, to speak very disapprovingly of someone. We don't know the words exactly that Peter used, but we can guess the gestures probably involved a finger-pointing we can get the tone, the body language. That's scene two. Movement three. Peter, I mean, excuse me, Jesus turns his gaze from Peter to the disciples across stage. So let's go ahead and pretend to raise those spots about 30%. And we're, drawing, we're pausing for dramatic tension right here. Then Jesus epitomizes Peter. Same word, rebukes Peter. And this time we get a line that's all caps. So we all know the words. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Scene five. Drop the lights on Peter. Raise the house lights. Everyone can see Jesus as he says to everyone. If anyone wants to follow me, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now the light, lights go out. Spot on Jesus, end of the short play, the end, end scene. Okay, <laughs> thank you for uh, pretending with me. <laughs> when what Peter uh, began to do with Jesus, by pulling him aside and sternly ordering him, censuring him, putting him in his place, ended up with Jesus not only telling Peter what his place was, but also where our place must be if we're going to keep up with him. The Cotton Patch Gospel is an unfinished collection of New Testament translated into a southern vernacular, unapologetically picked up from the first century Roman context and placed smack dab in the middle of the uh, last century, the Deep South. It's layered with tensions fueled by racism and injustice. Here now the translation's nuances of Jesus' call to discipleship, first from Luke and then from Matthew. If anybody really wants to share my way of life, let him have no regard for his own welfare and let him risk his life every day and walk the way with me. Or if a man wants to walk my way, he must abandon self, accept his lynching and share my life. These translated words were penned by Clarence Jordan, who was himself a Baptist rascal, according to most everyone who knew him. Recently, our youth servant leadership team took a pilgrimage 
was able to learn more about his life and major legacy, Koinonia Farm, an intentional Christian community in southern Georgia. Along with his wife Florence and an American missionary Baptist couple, they started a working farm in 1942, a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Jordan was a student of agricultural science and also theology, and from the beginning, they committed to living like the early church in Acts, sharing all things in common with anyone who wanted to come farm and live together on that plot of ground. They chose the Greek word koinonia because that's the word used to describe the way Christians shared all things and communed together in the book of Acts. Coincidentally, youth, koinonia, meets tonight, 5 o'clock. 515, excuse me. <clears throat> so at the outset of this 1940s farm, Koinonia Farm, the plot of ground seemed suitable for harvesting crops and sharing life. But because they refused to pay black farmers less money or eat at different tables, they were harassed, boycotted, threatened, bombed, shot up with guns, visited by a caravan from the KKK, unsuccessfully bribed to leave. Oh, and of course, ignored by local, state, and federal authorities throughout this multi-year ordeal. Oh, and they were also kicked out from their local Baptist church early on and told never to come back. You know, just a prototypical story of a little Christian community trying to humbly live and work and worship in peace on land that they own. It's really not unlike that early church in Acts, is it? Jordan died suddenly in 1969 while working on a sermon in his little writing shack. His sudden death is why the Cotton Patch Gospel translation was never completed. Local authorities refused to come out to pronounce him dead, so his good friend, Millard Fuller, loaded his body into a station wagon and drove it into town. Treated in death as he was in life, Jordan died to no fanfare. Violent racism, self-righteous segregation, still the dominant stories of the day. But we can see the truth about his death and life, can't we? For a man like that, whose life was so steeped in and steered by the way of the cross, we can know that while he was suffering and being shamed, he was all the while in a space of spiritual abundance, wrapped up and insulated in the love of God, a love that is most revealed when it is being poured out for others. Hear once more Jesus' words at the end of this chapter. Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and the holy angels. In this sanctuary, in 35 days, we'll have more people than we have today. And it'll be that way all around the world, as Easter Sunday always brings more people into the corporate worship of the resurrected Christ. Last year, we had 50% more in-person worshipers on Easter compared with Palm Sunday. Big crowd, nice attire, beautiful flowers. It's sure to be a lovely, inspiring service of worship again this Easter. 
in 33 days, we'll find ourselves on Good Friday, contemplating the humiliation, the torture, the death of our Savior. We'll open the doors of our sacred garden at noon, and many people will find unspeakable meaning, a mixture of sorrow and love, as they follow the stations of the cross and end right here in the sanctuary. Now, this is not a service based with value that's based on the numbers and attendance. No true service of worship should ever be judged by such human-minded metrics. But we know a lot more people will show up for Easter than Good Friday, and that's not just because we all are in school or have a job or at the dentist or have COVID. (coughs) I'm fine. Look, it's hard to stare at the shadows of the cross. It's painful to try to viscerally imagine the torture and loneliness of the crucifixion. It's painful for us, and we know the ending. So we can't be too harsh with those first disciples who just didn't get it, even after being repeated again and again. Not even Peter, who went from the top to the bottom when Jesus called him Satan and put him back in his place. Hours before the arrest in the garden, the author of Mark will say, Then Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here a while while I pray. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, He threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, from you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you might not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This Gethsemane event will happen two more times with the same disappointing patterns of the innermost disciples, those same three who stayed awake, the transfiguration on the mountaintop, those same three who would be awakened again to the miracle of Easter morning. But here in the garden, As the cross event draws near, the disciples can't help but close their eyes. And this is despite Jesus' command, despite him talking about this moment quite openly. The flesh is weak when it comes to contemplating a path of God that involves divine suffering. And this is still one of our greatest temptations today, to be pulled aside from prophetic talk about suffering and instead cozy up to the idea of a prosperity gospel. One that says God will bless us with a life of ease. God will reward us with human notions of wealth and power. God will fix all our problems like a spiritual handyman. This was Peter's temptation, and Jesus didn't want to risk it spreading or taking root with his disciples. It was a blind spot, and we all have our blind spots. Biblical scholars have noted that Mark has three passion predictions where Jesus tells of his inevitable betrayal, persecution, and death and resurrection. 
The first of these is right here in Mark 8 with two more occasions in the next two chapters. Now, if you take these three passion predictions together in context, you'll see that Mark frames them with stories of blindness, where Jesus offers healing to someone in need. In these framing stories, the blind do receive sight, but only after coming to Jesus, only after being put in place with him right where he stands. Jesus' words to Peter and then to the vast crowd is a call to get behind him. It's the only place to stand if we want to follow Jesus. Soon enough, the back of Jesus is where he will carry his cross. So perhaps we can think of it this way. Should we choose to follow, we need to get behind in our place. But once there, there's really no way to avoid the sign of the cross and all that it reveals about the character and nature and love of God. Several years ago, the sanctuary chandelier had to have the bulbs replaced. This is no measly or rapid replacement project, so lots of careful planning was in order. When the day came, I found myself walking into those doors and seeing the chandelier was lowered all the way to the tops of these pews right here. A few of our stellar maintenance staff members had been at it all day, for hours already. Now, for a little history lesson, the chandelier was designed in New York City and installed here in 1954 by a company that still exists, though they've moved out to Jersey. It's made of aluminum. It's finished in bronze. It boasted a candle power of 1,500. Imagine that. Or, thanks to Mark Green, imagine 19,000 lumens. That might be a little easier. It cost $4,900 before being installed, and it was a key part of the 1954 sanctuary renovation, along with air conditioning. Apparently, in 1953, it was dim and it was hot. <laughs> now, servicing this, as I said, is no simple feat. Now, in a little nook that's literally just above this dome, there's a small wooden platform and a dimly lit space. And when you're standing there, you can access the hand crank. One of our staff members later told me that getting the chandelier down was pretty simple using that crank. It only took about 45 minutes. Getting it back up, however, it took about two full cranks for every inch. So they had two staff workers in this tiny cramped spot on this little wooden boards. And they did this, it took them a couple hours and it ended up taking them a couple different times because they had to take it down, back up a little bit, down and back up a little bit. And I'm telling you all this so that you know that the people who work here on our maintenance and facility staff are fantastic. And they are determined with whatever they set their minds to and quite capable of about anything. So I walk in that, that morning and I see the chandelier almost on the floor. And of course, I take a picture and I admire the details of everything up close. Now fast forward to the following Sunday when the chandelier is back up in its place where it presently hangs and I look up and I see those beautiful LED bulbs, that warm glow. I notice it's beautiful and richly lit. I also notice that on each of the four points of the crossbars, there's an even brighter bulb that's been placed to the effect that the shape of the cross is richly illuminated 
when you're staring at it from below. To describe this in terms of Christian symbolism, there was a bright light protruding from the head, the feet, and the hands that were stretched out wide. But this is not what we see when we look up at this chandelier today. Instead of seeing additional brightness at the four points of the cross, we now see the absence of light. We see darkness. As it turns out, the electrical wiring for the chandelier was not quite suitable for those four brighter bulbs. There was a human plan to brighten the cross effectively. It was a lovely notion. But the bulbs gave way, and now instead of brightening the cross, it has an opposite effect. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things, Jesus still says. It's only human nature to want to polish and brighten the cross. If you can't avoid it altogether, to at least avoid lingering with any of the pain or hurt of Jesus' passion. But divine nature is different. Divine nature shows us through the incarnation that where our deepest grief is, there God will be. The truth of God's love is most fully revealed in the dark. So when I look up and I see points of absence in this beautiful ring of light, I remember that's how it happened. How Jesus said it would go all along. That's exactly how God was put in our place.